A handcuffed young man is forcibly removed from the rear of a police car and thrown on the ground. He lands on his head and as a result breaks his neck and becomes a paraplegic. A 79-year-old woman is crossing the street in the intersection in her vehicle when she's hit by a young man who's involved as a suspect in a police pursuit. She's severely injured and spends months in the hospital. A New York ICE office is involved in a series of raids where the argument is that those raids were unconstitutional. A police captain, after leaving the police force and retires and attempts to return back to duty in his former department, but he's denied acceptance once the department learns he's gay. And the deputy sheriff is charged by the district attorney's office with assault. City streets and the quiet town boulevards. The scene of the crime is the focal point of every investigation. Here, you've joined the team on a thread of evidence where your mind will be open to the exciting science of forensic investigations. Dr. Ron is a nationally renowned forensic criminologist who leads the nation's finest forensic death investigations team. Your host, Dr. Ron Martinelli, will lead this investigation. Retired Chief of Police Dan Montgomery of Colorado, who is also a federal and state qualified police practices expert. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hey, good morning, Ron. Thanks for having me. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you and I have worked at least one case together, but we've consulted on many cases together uh, over the years. And uh, I just wanted to uh, bring in a police administrator into a thread of evidence so that we can discuss what it's like for an administrative police practices expert to analyze and give testimony on cases and then perhaps you'll share some of your tips on what administrators, meaning chiefs of police and sheriffs can do when they find themselves a defendant in a federal or state lawsuit and they've got to sit on the hot seat in deposition or in trial. Are you good with me on that? Hey, you bet. Sounds good, Ron. Hey, so let's talk about this first case about the, the handcuffed young man who's forcibly removed from the patrol car, thrown to the ground, ends up with a serious injury, and becomes a quadriplegic. How did that case come to you, and what were your tasks involved in that case? Right, Ron. I got a call from the young man's attorney asking me if I'd be interested in reviewing that case, and uh, I did take it. It turned out to be a very, very interesting case. And uh, did you want me to go ahead and get into it, Ron? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, this young man, uh, he was, uh, oh, in his early 20s, he was a mixed martial artist. He'd had, I think, one professional fight. He was arrested. He was taken into custody. He was intoxicated. And they tried to take him down to the hospital. And they did. He was handcuffed in the back seat of the patrol car. They got to the hospital, the two officers did, and uh, were trying to get, starting to get him out of the police car. Well, they noticed that he was in the process of slipping his handcuffs. In other words, he moved his the handcuff wrist down behind his butt, down to around the knees. And the one officer noticed that he had the hands slipped down to that point behind the knees. The subject was then grabbed by one of the officers and pulled out of the police car. 
with his hands still down cuffed behind the knees. And the problem was that the young man landed on his head because there's no way he could brace his fall. Right, and there's no and balance then either. No, huh? no, no balance whatsoever. Well, he went, he went limp. The officers had no clue at that point in time that this man had actually broken his neck and turned out to be a quadriplegic as a result of that fall. They, they got a wheelchair, they brought it out, they tossed him into the wheelchair, took him into the hospital, and then the officers left the scene, and then it was later determined that he had broken his neck and was a quadriplegic. And you know, Ron, it just got down to the basic fundamentals, and I told you, yeah, I know you've in the past talked about loss of emotional control, and I think your term is emotional capture, That's which, is, which is a term I really like. And I think this was a case where the officers... Uh, just did not play it by the rules. You know as well as I do, and most chiefs and administrators know full well that when you've had, got someone in your custody, you've got to be careful getting them into the car. you got to be very careful getting them out of the car. And in this case, it was that, that negligence that uh, led to the lawsuit. Uh, I was never even deposed, Ron. I wrote a very lengthy report. I analyzed what the officers did uh, correctly and incorrectly. And the case settled out of court uh, for a very, very large settlement. I don't know what it was, but I know it was probably in the area of several million dollars. Well, let's, well, talk, about, let's talk about a couple of these issues. So I take it that the predicate stop for this young man whereby he was taken into custody, there were no problems with that. Is that correct? Right, yeah. He was, he was going through some drug withdrawal issues, a little bit of agitated, chaotic event kinds of activities. And, sure shouting and yelling and that type of thing. Okay, so what was your task in regards to this particular case, Dan? Because I know you specialize in the administrative and the training issues. You know, I'm, I do some of those things, not the administrative side. I deal with the training issues. I deal with all the Fourth Amendment issues. Uh, but, you know, your job, and that's why I'm really enjoying having you on the show today, your job is different than mine, although we're both federally and state qualified experts. So what was your task in this event? My task really was to look at the policies, policies procedures, and rules that the department had in uh, intact within their department, and to just basically look at the look at this thing from beginning to end. This was all on video too. Oh, that's and, good. Was it uh, were this body cam video? Was yeah, it body cam, cam or both? No, body cam video. It showed the whole thing on body cam. Okay, because uh, yeah, you know, so that was a that was a very high profile case here in Colorado. Well, let's let's talk about you know some of the issues, okay? Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people really don't understand uh, what uh, forensic experts like ourselves do, because uh, it's never portrayed, you know, on television. It's all about you know the detectives doing work, but uh, you know, people have to remember that when it gets into a court of law, whether it's a, a a criminal case or a civil case, there are specialized experts such as ourselves that are brought in to reanalyze, and because the, the show is a threat of evidence, let's go over what a couple of the allegations were on the part of the plaintiff. You bet. Yeah, what the plaintiff was alleging basically was a Fourth Amendment issue on uh, use of excessive force during the arrest. Okay, and, uh, and that did that include uh, him being placed in the patrol car, or was it the latter part once they took him out of the patrol car? No, it was, it's the latter part, Ron. At the stage, they decided to take him out of the patrol car, and, and I looked at it from the standpoint primarily of 
how good of a job did they do assessing the situation and what was unfolding before them? And then the tactic that they used to get him out of the police car where he was just tossed out and uh, not, it wasn't a controlled takedown that you and I are familiar with. And we've been familiar with that for years, but he was thrown out of the car. So it really, it got down to situation assessment and tactics. Okay. And so what types of evidence would you look at to review, Dan, in, in uh, trying to analyze the case and render your findings and opinion in this particular instance? Well, I was looking primarily, Ron, at the uh, tactics that the officers used in taking that arrestee out of the police car. You know, I looked at it from the standpoint of what, what was the key point, what caused this whole thing to go south? And the key point in this was not the training, the training was okay, the policies and procedures looked good. This just get, got down to individual situation assessment and a, and a very poor tactic in the way they took him out of the police car. It really was quite simple. It just, it was just boiled down to that, that one key point when the decision was made to take him out of the car and how they took him out of the car. Now, let me ask you a question. When he was in the backseat of the car, you had mentioned uh, uh, probably under the influence of drugs, uh, agitated, right. chaotic, had a martial arts background, right. uh, had even fought at least one fight professionally. So I would look at this guy as maybe being kind of a bad actor. And, you know, this would probably be a high-risk encounter between the officers and this guy. Uh, was he resistive inside the car? Had he been kicking? Had he, had he done anything to give the officers some indication that this was going to be a problem in transport, not only to the hospital, but from the squad car into the hospital? Well, the only, the only thing he did in the vehicle, he was, he was a little bit profane. He was mouthy during the transport. They knew this guy, Ron. They had interacted with him on prior occasions. He was well known in this small community in Colorado. So they knew that just based on his attitude and his demeanor. Uh, he'd never, they'd never had a situation where in the past he had assaulted an officer. They knew him, and again, they knew him well. So it was really a matter of being mouthy. And I looked at it from the standpoint of, you know what, when they saw that he had slipped the cuffs, why didn't they just secure the doors, get another one or two officers as backup, and then get in there and get him properly secured and get him out? It was really, again, it got down to that one issue of how they took him out of the vehicle. You know, it's so interesting that you mention this particular case, and as you're discussing it, it resonates with me because... I currently have a case uh, that dealt with a person somewhat like your guy in the car who they knew or had pretty good indication was under the influence of drugs and was resistant and could have been a problem by the time that they got to the hospital and that case in, in my own professional opinion was handled very poorly you know by the police and, and a person w was injured a as a result of it you know <coughs> would you agree with me that you know, it's often the most fundamental of police practices that, that officers, when they make a mistake like this, that they violate. It's, it's the most basic police 101 kind of stuff. It really is, Ron, and I find that so often. You know, and, and then the whole issue of emotional capture. I know in the case that I have, uh, emotional capture 
officers kind of losing it, getting jacked up, getting angry, uh, has has a lot to do with these things, and that's why uh, you know you and I are involved in in de-escalation training. Boy, exactly. And you know, I'm reminded all the time, Bob Koga. We all know Bob Koga. Yeah, I, I trained under Bob when he was alive. Oh yeah. And Bob Koga, he he made a statement one time, and he said something to the effect of excessive force occurs when you lose perspective and you overreact. And those that, that little statement has stuck with me for quite a few years, losing perspective and overreacting. You know, it's interesting because, you know, you mentioned this guy was a mixed martial artist, and uh, I've been a martial artist for, you know, 35 years or so. And I always tell my students, uh, including my police officers, I always say, look, uh, you can't always control people. You can only control yourself. And yeah. if you control yourself, you can better control people. That sounds kind of like what happened in this situation. Well, exactly, Ron. You know, you hit it right on the head. I mean, if you're not in control of yourself, you're not in control of the situation. So what other types of, of things did you ask for, Bob, from the police department and the attorney you were working for? And, and just for our audience, these are, uh, these are referred to as, um, you know, RPDs or responses uh, for production of documents, RPDs. And what we, we want to look at is certain things, types of indicia and, uh, you know, paperwork and manuals and things uh, that tell us more about how police officers are trained. What type of things did you request in this case to look at? Right. One of the, the things that I primarily look for, I start with the complaint. I want to review the complaint and see what the allegations are. And then review all of the police reports that are written. Those are critical because they're written right at the time that those are the freshest documents you've got regarding this case. So I look at all of the police reports. I always try to get a copy of the department policies, procedures, and rules. I also look to see if there's any Brady material on the officers. Have they ever gotten into a bind where they ended up with a Brady letter? Now, you uh, know what, Dan, let me just interrupt you for a second, yeah. because you and I understand what Brady is, but maybe a lot of people in our audience, and including police officers, may not have heard that term before. Can you just give us a little explanation uh, in brief about Brady? What, what does that mean? Yeah, Ron, as I recall, boy, and jump in, you, you're probably more on top of it than I am, but the Brady decision uh, came down years ago regarding the release of exculpatory material in other words, material that may tend to exonerate an individual, when departments or DAs re don't uh, turn over material to the defense attorney that may have exculpatory material in it. It all comes from that Brady decision. Now, well, in a case... Keep going. In, in You're a, doing great. You're yeah, explaining it, it beautifully. Yeah, and in a case where an officer, for example, is disciplined in a case where... The, that then shows that he's got a history of problems within the department for not being truthful. The DA, the district attorney, can issue a Brady letter, which goes out to defense attorneys, which essentially calls into question that officer's integrity in any future case that he or she may be involved in. Uh, and that's my interpretation of it, Ron. And, and I know that sometimes we'll get cases where we're dealing with officers who have, in fact, uh, been issued a Brady letter by their local district attorney. Boy, those can be career killers. 
Oh, absolutely. Did you get involved in uh, any of the review of the use of force training that these officers had been involved in with respect to arrest control and restraint tactics? Absolutely. And I look at their training and discipline. What I look for, I look for the training files. I look for their disciplinary files. I look for any internal affairs investigations that have been done in the past on the officers. But I look at the training and I just, I'm very curious because I'm a big believer in in in-service refresher training. I'm an advocate, sort of old school, that you should be giving your officers at least 40 to 80 hours annually of in-service refresher training in those real hot spot areas, the high liability areas, certainly including use of force. I'm an advocate, again, of at least annual use of force refresher training, you know, baton training, uh, hand-to-hand combat, uh, using red man, and, uh, and those types of things. And the other area is officer survival, uh, teaching these officers how to survive and, and make decisions under stress. I think some in some circles it's called stress inoculation training, right. but actually using you know, using the paintballs and creating real live scenarios, often using actors and actresses or fellow officers, and put the officers in the hot seat so they can learn to make a good decision under stress. Well, you know, that that's exactly right. I mean, you covered all the important issues with regards to training, and I'm right up with you there with the 40-hour uh, you know, uh, training uh, each year, and I think people would be extremely surprised to know how little training officers throughout the country receive. You know, as a matter of fact, you know, I did my entire career in the state of California, and also had uh, directed a police academy. Besides being a, a training provider, uh, where I still am, and in, in the state of California, for instance in what we call perishable skills, and those are all the things right. we just talked about, everything from de-escalation training to use of force training to pursuit training. Uh, in, in California, they only need to have uh, 14, 14 hours of training every other year. I mean, so within two years, 14 hours of training, my God. And, and a lot of times, you know, they make the mistake of trying to do it all like in one day, you know, where you're doing uh, you know, you're doing taser training and chemical agents training and baton training and arrest and control and hand-to-hand combat training all in one day. My God, you, you, there's no way that you could, uh, you know, give all that information to an officer and get him to understand and be able to, to do it, you know, with, with, you know, such compressed, you know, training like that. Well, listen, let's come back after this break and let's talk about the case you had with the 79 year old woman who's driving through the intersection and gets plowed into uh, by the guy eluding police during the pursuit. You're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and retired chief of police and federal and state court police practices excerpt, Dan Montgomery on a thread of evidence. This is Dr. Ron Martinelli forensic criminologist and host of A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. If you'd like to find out what forensic criminologists really do in the field and you're tired of the false narratives about law enforcement and want to unpack the cases that I've worked throughout the nation, then please pick up a copy of my new book, The Truth Behind the Black Lives Matter Movement and the War on Police, on sale right now at Amazon.com. That's the truth behind the Black Lives Matter movement and the war on police 
at Amazon.com. Let the silent voices be heard. It's the rallying call that started it all. AmericaOutloud.com. For a wide spectrum of programming from world and political news, societal and cultural stories, law enforcement, our military heroes, and much more. News blogs, informative podcasts, and entertaining videos. Welcome to the new era in communications. America Out Loud Talk Radio. So then let's talk about this case of this 79-year-old woman that gets broadsided by this suspect in a police pursuit. What was that all about? Yeah, Ron, that was an interesting case. In fact, I just finished testifying in that case uh, recently. It involved a 79-year-old woman who, in a residential area in a small rural community, stopped at a four-way stop sign, residential area, 25-mile-an-hour zone, looked both ways, it was clear. She proceeded out into the intersection and she was T-boned in the middle of the intersection by a pickup truck. The pickup truck estimated speed four seconds prior to collision was 74 miles an hour. Wow. At, at the point of collision, his speed was estimated by the accident reconstructionist to be 54 miles an hour. This woman's numerous, numerous injuries was in the hospital for about three months. What happened was, as she entered the intersection, she was struck by this pickup truck driven by a young man accompanied by a female. It was a stolen vehicle. The officers chasing did not know it was a stolen vehicle. They had been dispatched to a fight at an apartment complex earlier. And the information they had received that they knew at the time was that one of the persons involved in this fight was seen with a gun. There was no information broadcast about any shots being fired or anyone being injured. So what the officers knew at the time was, hey, there was a fight, there had been kids in the area, there was one female and several males, and one person had a gun. So this pickup truck is seen leaving from the scene. The officer tries to initiate a stop Suspect refuses to stop and continues on. Just seconds later, one of the officers at the scene of the fight indicated that the gun had been tossed by another suspect and the gun was in the custody of the police at the scene. Well, the officers, two officers, one lead car and a secondary car, continued this pursuit. First, it was in a 35 mile an hour zone area. And then it escalated uh, at even higher speeds into a 25-mile-an-hour zone. What, what I did, I reviewed the entire case, Ron, and in my opinion, uh, the pursuit should have been terminated. It was just too dangerous. It was a windy residential combination commercial neighborhood, 25 miles an hour limit. They even had a 20-mile-per-hour speed advisory sign in place on that particular road. In my in my opinion, the pursuit should have been terminated. One of the key points in this case was the fact that a year and a half later uh, in the deposition, uh, and even in trial, uh, the officer indicated that he was concerned that the female might be a hostage that was in the truck fleeing from the officers. What I pointed out, which was very interesting, in his original police report 
completed within a day or so of the incident, he indicated in his police report that he had reasonable grounds to stop the vehicle because of the, uh, it was a felonious pursuit and he was suspecting both parties, the both of the occupants of being armed. So in other words, the hostage side of the story never came out till over a year later. There was nothing in his original report about that. So in my opinion, uh, to be put it quite simple, the pursuit should have been terminated. In that case, and it went to a full jury trial for a week, the jury returned a $1.2 million verdict on behalf of this 79-year-old woman. They agreed that the pursuit should have been terminated. You know, uh, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't surprise me at all uh, for, for a number of reasons. Boy, you got so many things going on in this particular case because, uh, you know, just uh, for our listeners, you know, when we talk about the Fourth Amendment issues, uh, we have to balance what's referred to as the governmental need against the intrusion upon the individual. That's a lot of legal, you know, mumbo-jumbo. What does it really mean? What it means is the more serious an event is, an incident is, or perhaps the seriousness of a crime and the exigency of that to capture the individual, the more latitude that law enforcement officers are allowed to use in their method of capture, restraint, use of force. Okay, so it's kind of like big deal, little deal, you know. Right. Uh, you know, a big deal. Uh, you can have a lot of latitude. Something that is not such a big deal, you don't have as much latitude. Now, this case starts out with a stolen vehicle, and uh, and and officers that have a reason to believe that one of the parties is armed, even if it's a potential hostage situation, they still have to balance that out, and that starts they start losing latitude as soon as those speeds climb you know into a residential area and the gun is tossed out of the vehicle so they start losing exigency so once things start chat you know changing in, in what we would refer to as this rapidly evolving event that that's tense and uncertain is that once the gun gets tossed out of the car and once the speeds start climbing and the pursuit enters into a residential neighborhood those officers based on their education training and experience should have reason to believe that there would be pedestrian traffic that there would be slower moving traffic and they would be passing through various intersections all of which elevates the nature of the pursuit and the dangers of it and should tell a reasonably trained officer just like you determined Dan that hey I think we need to stop pursuing this person well exactly Ron and in this particular case the the gun that was seen was in the possession of someone else at the scene and the person at the scene threw it away and then the officer at the scene got it but <clears throat> the officers doing the pursuit they were aware on the radio that the gun had been recovered. And uh, so, but they, uh, you know, they elected to continue the pursuit anyway. And what was interesting, so the fact the gun was really became a non-issue because they heard on the radio that the gun was in someone else's possession and had been tossed at the scene. 
but the officers elected to continue the pursuit anyway. The interesting thing was that the department policies were really in good shape, and they clearly gave the supervisor, you know, or the pursuing officer the discretionary latitude to cancel the pursuit. What was interesting was in trial, the officer said that he was afraid and he wished the supervisor had canceled that pursuit. So I raised the question in my testimony, the officer himself could have canceled that pursuit, but he chose not to. And I think that was very compelling testimony at trial. Well, I think you're exactly right. If the officer himself is saying, geez, you know, the sergeant should have canceled the pursuit. Wait a minute. You're the guy that initiated the pursuit. You're the pursuit driver. You can just take your foot off the gas anytime you want and cancel that pursuit. So here's the question I have for you. Was there some emotional capture involved in this? You know, sort of like the dog after the rabbit. In all of these police pursuit situations, Ron, we know from the experience that we've had in law enforcement, emotions are running high, the adrenaline is pumping, the officer's trying to assess what's going on. And I know, again, I think I mentioned earlier, you've used the term emotional capture. And I think that happens a lot in police pursuits. For citizens who have never done it, uh, it's really hard to develop a feel for how the officer may feel. So they're going through all of these emotions. Uh, Their adrenaline is pumping. They have this desire to catch the bad guy. And all of these things come into play. But the bottom line is, as you've indicated, there just gets to a point in a high-speed pursuit where you've got to call it. And they just fail to call it in this case. Well, you know, there's so many, you know, my background as a a medical investigator, I deal with human factors, psychophysiology. And when you're involved in these pursuits, and believe me, I probably in my career, I've probably been involved in maybe 75 pursuits, okay? Yeah. Uh, Including a couple that uh, resulted in in a fatality uh, for the driver, albeit not any of our faults. I mean, he was way, you know, way in front. We had already slowed down. In one case, we had already stopped the pursuit. He continued to go and, and ended up you know, on a motorcycle and ended up getting killed. So we were absolved of any, uh, any blame on that. But yeah. you just you got to know when to call it because the human factors, uh, you know, your blood pressure goes up, what we call our, our basal BASAL, our basal metabolic rate our blood pressure, our heart rate, our respiration goes up, and then we start experiencing all the problems, Dan, that you and I are familiar with, with officers when they're engaged in officer-involved shootings. We have hearing distortions, we have uh, problems with our sight, you know, we we end up losing all of our peripheral vision, it goes to tunnel vision, and you just can't do that when you're speeding, you know, down a highway or down a residential neighborhood. You've got to have total peripheral vision because you've got things coming out on all sides you know uh, vehicles pedestrians plus you know your your whole action reaction perception lag time thing uh, is really very much against you so you know let's go back to the plaintiff's complaint in that particular case tell me what they were alleging well you know that was interesting it didn't go to u.s district court it wasn't uh filed as a Fourth Amendment claim. This went to state court as a uh, simple uh, state tort, and it was handled in state court. And what they were alleging was that uh, the officers were negligent in that they did not terminate the pursuit, given the circumstances of the case. 
Well, you know what's interesting about that, Dan, and I'll share this with our audience. You know, we have two venues for civil torts, and, and a tort is a lawsuit, okay? Uh, we have the federal court standard, and we have the state court standard. In the state court, the plaintiffs in a case uh, can allege negligence. Now, in a federal action, they can always allege negligence, but negligence is not part of that burden of proof. Okay, that's interesting, isn't it? Okay, it's really not part of that burden of proof. More in the federal court, uh, the test is whether the off, I mean, and, and also for guys like you and me to testify, uh, the standard that we have to testify to is uh, they did not uh, act in a, in a way that was consistent with their education and training in law enforcement and also by the codified standards of care. Okay, what does that mean? That means that there are, you know, enumerated, uh, you know, uh, statutes, there's case law, uh, there is uh, policy uh, with respect to how they're trained, uh, you know, in learning domains at the police academy, and these things are uh, recognized, accepted, and applied things. Uh, the things that experts cannot testify, and this is probably going to surprise a few of our listeners, but we can't testify to anything that deals with credibility. All right, so we can't say that, hey, this person's telling the truth and this person's lying. That's a try or a fact or a judge or jury issue. And the other thing we can't say, and experts say it all the time, and they can't do that, is that the whether or not the officers acted in an objectively reasonable manner. You can't testify to that, okay? That, that's something that the trier of fact has to make a determination on. So you can either say, hey, listen, what they did met the standard codified police practices and the standard of care and the way that they were trained, or it, it doesn't. Uh, it doesn't match up. It's not supported by that training. Would you agree? Yeah, that's a really good point, Ron. In fact, I've run into that several times in the U.S. District Court where, you know, I'm not allowed to testify about objective reasonableness because you're right. That's an issue for the jury. I can't testify about credibility. That's an issue for the jury. But what I can testify to, and I know you have, I talk about well-established and modern police practices and standards. In other words, what I talk about is, were the actions of the officer consistent with what a reasonably trained and prudent officer would have done under the same or similar circumstances? And that's sort of the paintbrush that I use. And you know what? That's exactly, you're right in your wheelhouse. And, and one of the problems, you know, I'll, I'll be, you know, constructively critical about experts who have opposed us is that they tend to get out of their wheelhouse and they, they tend to make, uh, you know, findings and opinions where they can't do it, okay, because they're precluded right. by, by court law, what, the, what we call the 702 rules of federal evidence. They can't do that, and then they get their testimony either limited or excluded in a court of law. And, you know, the bread and butter of a forensic expert is their ability of not only analysis but testimony, okay? You want to be able to get your expert deployed, not only in deposition, but in a court of law. And, and where they make their mistakes is in their reports, where they make findings and opinions that they can't make. They speculate, and you can't speculate because it's an objective standard of proof. It's not a speculative one. And then, you know, the other thing is 
they give testimony and deposition that ends up being inappropriate and limited or excluded. Boy, that's a good point, Ron, because I'm working a case right now involving an officer-involved shooting, and the attorney that I'm working for, they hired me as a police practices expert, and that's fine. You know, I, I rendered some opinions regarding the, the propriety of the shooting, but then they wanted me to get into some of the forensic areas, and they made the, they made the mistake, and it could end up biting them, they didn't hire a forensics expert like you to talk about the scientific aspects of this case. And I think that could prove to be fatal. Well, you know, uh, you, are, you are so true, I mean, you know, about what you're talking about. You know, we have 18 experts at Martinelli and & Associates and in our death investigations team, and we literally have a forensic expert, be it scientific or medical expert, and obviously police practices and corrections experts, for pretty much every single thing that you can think of uh, involved in any type of forensic investigation or analysis. Even you yourself in this particular case, who did you guys use? You used an accident reconstructionist, okay? And that is a forensic scientist in the right. field of accident reconstruction. Right. In fact, more and more I'm getting into situations where I do in fact recommend to the attorney that, hey, maybe we can do a, a, a two-member team on this thing where I can talk about the policies, procedures, rules, and tactics, but then bring in the forensics person to talk about the scientific background, much like what you and I did on another case we handled, Ron. Well, you know, uh, as, as we come back from our next break, Dan, I want to talk about that case in Colorado, and it yeah. was called the Davies case. We've actually had uh, a couple of our forensic experts, uh, Lance Martini, our ballistic scientist, and also Dr. Uh, Paul Michael, who's our vision expert, testify in that case. I was the police practices guy, and you were the administrative expert. So right. when we come back from a thread of evidence, you're listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli, forensic criminologist and retired chief of police and now police practices expert, Dan Montgomery. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep, but it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multinutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Well, we're back with Chief and Expert Dan Montgomery. And Dan, when we left off, we were going to talk about probably one of the most complex cases and tragic cases that myself and my forensic death investigations team uh, have ever been involved in. You were an important component 
of the expert team in that case and it was referred to as the Davies case because unfortunately at this Colorado Police Department officer James Davy was actually shot and killed on what we refer to as a blue on blue shooting and the listeners can can hear a lot more about that show on a thread of evidence by checking in with our podcast and I believe the show title is blue on blue shooting and so just for our listeners to just kind of set this case up uh, a lot of police officers were called uh, to a house in uh, in this city uh, where there had been reports of shots fired and people with guns in the house Uh, the police had uh, surrounded the house there was a police helicopter involved in this and uh, officers were stationed around various areas around the curtilage or the outside uh, fencing of this residence an entry team had gone in some people had already uh, been negotiated out of the house the police thought there might be one or two people that were armed still inside the house they put together very quickly a uh, a three-man entry team Uh, they sent that entry team in they got rid of the helicopter uh, long before they did that which was unfortunate and uh, as the first member they cleared the house and as the first member uh, of the stick uh, came out of that house uh, with an M4 uh, AR-15 uh, he spotted uh, Officer Davies, who, by the way, at that time was was in uniform, and he was, uh, but he couldn't be totally seen. It was just sort of his shoulders and his head above the fence line. Uh, he got surprised by Officer Davies and and shot and killed him. It was absolutely tragic, and uh, so I had. Uh, couple of different members of uh, our forensic death investigations team deployed there. I had our ballistic scientist Lance Martini, our vision expert uh, Dr. Paul Michael. I was there for the use of force and police tactics but we really needed an administrative expert and you were in Colorado and I gave you the call and you came into our case and really helped. Can you talk about how you unpacked that bag you bet, Ron. Uh, you're right. This was an extremely tragic case. And I was called in on this thing, uh, I think, after you had already been involved in it for a period of time. And I really looked at this case from the standpoint of how did the policies, procedures, and rules of the department shape up? How did their policies shape up in terms of when to deploy a SWAT team? and how SWAT teams are to be deployed. That's primarily the the area that I was looking at. And I was, as I got into this case, I'm looking at the policies and procedures dealing with SWAT, but then I'm also reading what the officers did, how they exited the, the house, and listening to some of the audio tapes, I came to the conclusion that a very poor job was done in terms of the situation assessment. Uh, They knew there were officers, what they they did, there was a couple members of this team that were also members of the SWAT team. This was sort of a mixed SWAT team, a couple SWAT guys and a couple guys that were not SWAT. And that that can be dangerous in and of itself. And and Dan, you remember one of the key things, and I know you gave a lot of testimony on this, there were two supervisors involved in this case. There was a female 
rookie sergeant who hadn't even been to supervisor school yet, and they right. put her out on the street as a field supervisor, and then there was an older sergeant uh, who was in the adjoining district who was a member of the SWAT team, but only as a hostage negotiator. He wasn't an operator. And right. those two people were the people that developed the faulty plan. Can you take it from there? You bet, Ron. Yeah, there was a female sergeant who was sort of the incident commander at that point, And she was trying to handle the incident. Well, in comes the some members of the SWAT team, and they had one or two officers that were not members of the SWAT team. And this particular SWAT sergeant, he you're right, Ron, he was he was a hostage negotiator. He really wasn't more the tactical part of it, but more the hostage negotiator. And where the situation broke down is there was a natural deference, I think, given to him because he was on the SWAT team and he was accompanied by a couple of members of the SWAT team. And I think she deferred to him to a certain extent in that case. But the bottom line was it was just not handled correctly. Uh, what should have happened in that case tactically, and I'm sure you would agree, there should have been a much better job done on confirming where exactly the perimeter officers were and what positions around that house they had. That officer going out with his tactical rifle didn't have a clue where that perimeter officer was. He basically went out blind and Tactically, that was a, a big, big area that that I tended to focus on. Why didn't somebody just say, hey, time out. Let's make sure we know where our perimeter, perimeter people are before you go out and clear that backyard. And you know, that was exactly the case because uh, if you remember, uh, and we completely reconstructed that entire event. Uh, right. We, we actually used, he wasn't working for us then, but he works for us now. We used... Uh, Dr. Richard Zernicki, who's also from Colorado, and probably, I mean, in my humble opinion, probably one of the best PhD engineering reconstructionists uh, in the nation, and it was just phenomenal working uh, with Dr. Zernicki. And we completely, he brought out his Forbus 360, we measured over 5 million points and points of evidence, over 5 million. And, uh, and then we built the exact same gun that the shooting officer had. I actually had it in my own arsenal, and the only thing I had to switch out on it was the EOTech site he used. And uh, we put in uh, that same uh, Surefire flashlight on the end of the barrel of that thing. And then I have a special set of glasses that I use with a camera in them that will show you basically the equivalent of what the human eye would see and you know all of that was was very important but we couldn't put a bow on that package until we brought you to the team and you gave such great testimony in that case well thanks Ron yeah that that was a it was just a tragic case you know my gut reaction I'm sure it's yours as well the right hand just didn't seem to know what the left hand was doing exactly you know, there's an old saying, if a Polk, I think, had developed the saying back in the 1700s, talking about fools rush in where angels fear to tread. And that's essentially what you had here. The right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. They went into that backyard. The officer with the assault rifle heard voices. He looked up through his scope. 
caught caught a quick glimpse of somebody behind the fence, thought it was a bad guy, and opened fire. Yeah, and tragically, I mean, we lost a we lost an officer. Yeah, and you know we were there. Uh, so you know why were we called? You know why was the death investigations team called on this case? The case had already been investigated uh, by an independent review team of uh, very competent officers. And, and supervisors from several different departments in Colorado. But you know, the, the thing that I was just amazed by, uh, you brought up the important thing with regards to uh, the incident commander and, and the poor delineation of responsibilities between the IC and the, the sergeant who was actually a member of the entry team that had no business being on the entry team. Uh, and then the loss of the helicopter, my God, you know, you got the helicopter with the starlight, Five million candle power turns, you know, turns black night into literally daytime, and could have identified all of those officers. And if you remember, we even saw it on the FLIR, the forward-looking infrared radar, on their video, which was very damning to the other side. But the one thing that the independent review team of that case never did was to look through the sight on that rifle. And right. see what the op, what a reasonable officer would have been able to see, and right. that's what we. That's the first thing you do almost once you've established the crime scene. Give me that shooting platform. Give me that rifle. Let me listen to what the officer has to say, and then I want to look through that rifle sight and see if that supports what he's saying. It was never done, and I realized there was a red flag in the investigation when we asked to see that rifle. So we could reconstruct it, and they wouldn't let us do it. That's yeah. why we had to build our own rifle. They were afraid of what we were going to see when we looked through that rifle. Yeah. But, you know, we were actually hired in that case by the wife of the dead officer who had two children. And I will have to say that the police department in the city of that town, which will go nameless, um, did, didn't do the right thing by that poor woman. Okay? And they fought her tooth and nail when her husband died in the line of duty. Okay. Boy, that, <clears throat> that's exactly right, Ron. And, you know, you and I talked many times about how that civil suit could have been avoided if the organization had just handled this thing appropriately. Well, you know, as I remember uh, the report, uh, they did a pretty darn good job, and actually they gave you a lot of ammunition because they discussed all the policies and procedures and uh, how the officers and supervisors at that incident had screwed up, and I think you really capitalized on that uh, when you came in and gave your testimony. Yeah, that was that was very helpful in that case, and it it was just so tragic. And when you have these blue on blue shootings, and you sit back and you critique and analyze, you you look at the mistakes that are made. Uh, it just uh, it causes a great deal of sadness, I'll tell you. Well, you know, there there are no winners in a case like that. Okay, this isn't uh, this isn't something as experts we go in and hey, you know, we're uh, you know this is this is an adversarial situation. We're forensic people. We look at these things uh, unemotionally, uh, and and we're just there to to testify for facts and forensic evidence. Uh, the city, by the way, this was in trial. Okay, so we were giving testimony before a jury. But what happened after everybody testified, and I think you were the last member of our team to testify, is that the city uh, attorneys had stopped, asked the judge to stop the trial, uh, to take a breather, 
and they ended up settling that case out of court for about four and a half million dollars. Yeah, and I was surprised it settled. I thought that would go uh, go all the way. Well, we were almost through the trial, if, if you recall, okay? Uh, and so I think they just saw uh, the look on the members of the jury. I remember when I took the stand and gave testimony, and I got to hear your testimony, I was looking at the jurors, and they, were, they, they didn't have happy faces on. I think the city attorneys uh, made the right decision. They assessed uh, the jury. Sometimes they actually have paid... Um, jury consultants that give them advice during the course of a trial, and this was a big dollar trial, and probably told them, hey, you better, you know, I don't think you're winning any friends here. Maybe we should do the right thing and settle this case. Now, I know the plaintiffs asked for about six and a half uh, million dollars. They got four and a half, but now uh, Mrs. <coughs> Davies can move on with her life, with her children. Uh, those kids can be well cared for and get a college education. Well, that's exactly right, Ron. And you know, it's a technicality, but I, you know, did that, I'm trying to remember, did that go to trial or did we testify at a 702 hearing? No, I thought we went to trial. I, I thought mm. we went to trial on that. I can't remember. You know, I'll have to go back and, and look yeah. at it, but boy, I sure remember all of us testifying. And It's uh, been, been too long. Yeah, but you know what? It, it's very interesting being on the hot seat in a high dollar trial like that. Hey, well, let me take uh, an opportunity and switch it up. And briefly, I'd like to talk about your very interesting case about the police captain uh, who retires from the police department, then comes back. Uh, did he retire or come back uh, to return to duty with his old <coughs> department, but gets denied acceptance because they find out he's gay? Yes. Let's talk about that. What an interesting case. I don't cover anything like that in my practice. Well, what was interesting in that case was this was a guy who, for years, had been with this uh, large law enforcement organization, police police department, and decided to retire. He wanted to get into something else. Well, after he retired, he just figured out that the new career wasn't for him. The, the grass was not greener on the other side of the fence. So he wanted to come back to his old department. Well, what the former department required of him was that he had to go through an interview, he had to go through another background, he had to go through a polygraph examination. And so he did all of that, and he had left the department with an impeccable record. Well, during the polygraph phase of that re-entry into the department, uh, some issues came up about him going to Thailand or some somewhere over in the, the east, the Far East or Middle East. And... Uh, uh, had an affair over there with someone of the same sex. The question was asked of him during the polygraph was the was the person uh, who gave him a massage of the same sex, and he replied yes. Well, to make a long story short, uh, he was disqualified from coming back to the department because what they did is learn through the polygraph administration that he was gay. Well, and that's a class action case then, right? He's a yeah, so he, class. Yeah, so he he filed a lawsuit on, uh, for those very reasons. And first it went to an administrative hearing before a state administrative law judge. And the administrative law judge agreed that the failure to rehire him was in violation and uh, ended up he got front damages awarded 
an attorney's fees awarded. And then I just found out recently he even got a job back with that organization, not in a sworn capacity, but in a civilian capacity. And what basically this boiled down to was the inappropriate way of using a polygraph examination during a hiring, or in this case, a rehiring process, and the questions that were asked, and then the assumptions that were made just based on the polygraph readings, not any admissions or confessions or verbalized statements, but on the readings of the polygraph. And that's really what led, I think, to a large degree, the decision by the administrative law judge. Well, i tell you what, I congratulate you for being involved in such a meaningful civil rights case. Hey, Dan, we've just got about a minute. Can you, you plug, can you plug your company and tell people where they can find you? You bet, Ron. Uh, my uh, website is www.professionalpoliceconsulting.com. Uh, I'm the owner of uh, Professional Police and Public Safety Consulting and have been for the last 11 years since I retired in 2007. I was a police officer for 47 years, 26 of which were as a chief of police. And uh, I've been started my career in Los Gatos, California. Then I oh, went up to in Lake... my neck of the woods near you San bet. Jose. You bet, suburb right? of San Jose. <laughs> I left there as a sergeant and went to Lakewood, Colorado in 71. I was there about 12 years, made the rank of captain. And then I became the chief of police in Westminster, Colorado. I was there 25 years. And then, but I'm the past president of the Colorado Association of Chiefs of Police and the uh, past president of the Metropolitan Association of Chiefs of Police. So, you know, I've been around and learned a few things over the years. So I thought I would put that to good use when I formed my LLC in 2007. Well, I've got to tell people that uh, Dan and I have known each other for 10 years. We actually met in a training uh, class uh, back in 2010 in uh, San Jose, California, right. yep. uh, out at the police academy there. Uh, Dan, I have followed your career. Uh, you've had a, a remarkable career, uh, not only in law enforcement, uh, but forensic experting. I want to thank you so much for coming here. You've been listening to Dr. Ron Martinelli and uh, retired chief of police and forensic uh, expert in police practices, Dan Montgomery. You're listening to A Thread of Evidence on America Out Loud. <laughs>